Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Last week, we left off with the Apostle Paul, this great missionary, this great apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He's been traveling around on his third journey around the Gentile world. He's, his third missionary journey, he's been traveling and preaching. He's going to Corinth, where we had the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. He's been in Ephesus, which is where we left off, which is where he wrote the book of Ephesians, or excuse me, the people he wrote the book of Ephesians to. And so he's getting ready to leave Ephesians, and it tells us in chapter 19 that, that Paul had a journey, he had a mission, excuse me, a focus, that he wanted to leave Ephesus, where he'd spent three years preaching the gospel and building and nurturing and loving this church where he left and he said, I'm going to go to Macedonia, which is where he'd already planted some churches. I'm gonna go back there for a season and then I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. And then from there, I'm going to go to Rome. And we're gonna talk a lot more about that in the next few weeks, so I don't wanna get ahead of myself. But this is his plan. And of course, last week a riot broke out. We talked about that, not an actual riot in here. We read that in the Bible. There was a riot that broke out in the Bible. Come on, let's just be honest. And with 2020, we never like, I don't know, a riot's gonna break, it could. It could, I was at McDonald's, a riot broke out. You never hear of a riot breaking out in Chick-fil-A though. That's just another, it's another story. But this riot breaks out and, and the mayor of the city of Ephesus comes and he calms everything down. And so now Paul is free to go about his mission, to go back to the thing that he intended to do, which was to go through Macedonia. We're going to talk about why he was going through Macedonia in a minute, but let's go back to the text. Acts chapter 20, verse 1 says this, when the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. Then he said goodbye and left for Macedonia. While there, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. Then he traveled down to Greece where he stayed for three months. He was preparing to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life. So he decided to return through Macedonia. Paul can't catch a break. He's trying to go and and he he finds out the place I wanna go, there's people threatening to kill me there. So I guess I'll stay here for a little while. This was Paul's life. The chaos is over and Paul, is trying to continue preaching the gospel. And there's something in particular that he wants to do in Macedonia. And I'm gonna tell you that in a second, but I wanna say this. Why did he, why was Paul encouraging the believers? I believe number one, because he was leaving. He was leaving. Here's this man who came and brought the life-changing message of the gospel to this city, transforming things, preaching to them nurturing them, helping them love God. And he says, hey, by the way, I'm leaving. So they needed encouragement. They also needed encouragement because not only did the people hate Paul and the message he was preaching, but they, were, they hated the Christians as well. So Paul was leaving and he knew that they, they were brokenhearted because he was leaving, but they were also gonna be facing a lot of challenges. 
So as we read through these books like Ephesians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Colossians, and you see Paul encouraging, Galatians, you see Paul encouraging these believers to hold fast in the face of persecution. He knew what they were up against. So he stayed encouraging them. But I want to fill you in on a little bit of information. Why, why was Paul going back through Macedonia before he went to Jerusalem? The Bible actually tells us this in, in some of the books that Paul wrote. What Paul was doing was Paul was going around receiving an offering. He went back through Macedonia to all of these churches, these Gentile churches, and he was receiving money to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. He was going on a legacy campaign. He was going on, I'm raising money for this. Now, why was he doing that? Because he wanted to bring money, he wanted to bring resources back to the church in Jerusalem because they were struggling. Now, don't look at this as they're just passing some dollars along. Jerusalem was the place where all of this began. The Gentile world owed the church in Jerusalem because that's where it all started. There's something to be said about honoring the past. There's something to be said about honoring those who sacrificed to get you to the place where you are today. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul was going to these Gentile churches and he's saying, listen, God is with you, God is moving, but I don't want us to forget the reason why we have this is because of this church in Jerusalem. So I want you to sacrificially give so that we can give to them. So that we can bless them. Because they're struggling, they're persecuted, they're hurting, they're going through some things and we want to be a blessing to them. And there's something that Paul felt that I want to really make the point of my message today. Paul felt the responsibility to do this. The title of my message this morning is this, it's the road of responsibility. Say it with me, say the road of responsibility. Now one of the problems with the up and coming culture that we're in, that we're facing, the ones coming behind us, the ones coming behind that one, is the very lack of taking responsibility. It is always somebody else's fault. Everything that's wrong in our life can be traced back to what somebody else did. That's why I'm like I am. That's why I have a bad attitude. It's my wife's fault. <laughs> Somebody laughed a little too hard. You're in trouble when you get home. It's always somebody, it's my kid's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my grandparents' fault. It's society's fault. It's that people group's fault. It's always someone else's fault. If I step on your toes today, I'm, I'm intending to. I hope so, because I want it to transform and change us. I want us to see things the right way. We don't like to take responsibility. And I'm not just addressing things to young people today. And I'm not just addressing things to men today, but I do hope to really challenge the men in this place today. I wanna challenge everyone, but I wanna challenge you men in particular through this message today because one of the very distortions of culture is causing men and young men to no longer take responsibility. 
You want, do you want to know what a man is? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> the fact is, we live in 2022. That's a hard question. <laughs> do you want to know what a man is? It's not how many women you slept with. It's not how many, it's not how nice your car is. It's not how big your house is. It's not how much money you make. That's not the essence of what a man is. That's not the essence of masculinity. I, I, I heard this by this theologian who I respect, a guy by the name of Doug Wilson. He said this, and I thought this was probably the most profound definition of, of what a man is that I've ever heard. He said, masculinity is the glad embrace of sacrificial responsibility. Masculinity is the glad embrace of sacrificial responsibility. What do men do? Men take responsibility. You're not a man because you have a child. You are a man because you care for it. That is the essence of what masculinity is. Why do we call God our father? Because he took responsibility for us. That is what masculinity does. It takes responsibility. And I have to say this, I said this yesterday and I won't stay here too long, but I watched that man that we just talked about and prayed for sitting on that front row take responsibility for his wife in the last days of her life. I watched a man. I watched a man do what men are called by God to do, take responsibility. My, uh, my pastor years ago, when I first came here to this campus, his name was Rob Longmire. How many of you remember Pastor Rob? You ever have those moments where God forces you to take responsibility? <laughs> I remember a moment Lauren and I were having a um, conversation. <laughs> and it was a heated conversation, mainly on her part, but a heated conversation. And I will never forget this. We're living here at the campus and we're in the duplexes in the back there. And all of a sudden we're, we're in the thick of it. And I walk in the kitchen and somehow my phone is on and the person it called was my pastor. <laughs> I picked up the phone, man of God. God set me up for that one. I remember Pastor Rob teaching me something that has never left me. He said this, it may not be my fault, but it's my responsibility. It may not be my fault, but it's my, I may not have done it, but it's my responsibility. These are things that men do. These are things that we as Christians are called to. We are called to take responsibility. Men, we're called to take responsibility for our families. But wives, you're called to take responsibility for yourself. You're called to take responsibility for your children. If God puts anything within your care, he's trusted you to take responsibility for it. 
Now, let me, let me just meddle a little bit. Spiritually speaking, this is true in our own spiritual lives as well. What do I mean by that? Sometimes I've heard Christians, and I've, I, I know I've been guilty of it myself in the past. Why is this an issue? It's a generational curse. And I want you to hear something. I believe in the generational influences that come from the enemy, that come from family, our family line. I believe those things can make temptations extremely hard in our lives because of that. But it does not give you an excuse to do that sin. It does not. Well, I keep doing this, Pastor, because it's a generational sin. That may make it more difficult but the responsibility is still yours. You did it. Let me tell you, I, I sat down, I'm telling you, there was, I sat with a man who got so angry with, him, with me for telling him this, but it was so true and it brought such fruit in his life. I said, the reason why you did this, you wanna know why? Yes, because you wanted to. You did it because you wanted to. And sometimes the very thing that we need the most is to simply take responsibility for what we've done. Paul was a man who took responsibility and he challenged others to do the same and we're gonna see that. But more importantly, Jesus took responsibility. I want you to see this for a moment. I'm standing for this. Jesus came and died on the cross not because he sinned, but because he was taking responsibility for us who sinned. Jesus modeled taking responsibility for us so that we could, in fact, do the exact same and take responsibility. The least we can do is take responsibility for our own actions. Acts chapter 20, verse 4, several men were traveling with him, traveling with Paul. They were Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. They went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. After the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia and five days later joined them in Troas where we stayed a week. Now, once again, we see the apostle Paul traveling and doing ministry with a team of people. He did it with other people. There were moments where we see Paul doing ministry by himself but if you read into the text, those are often the moments when Paul was discouraged, when he was doing it by himself. What am I saying? And I've said this many times before, Christianity is a team sport. We're called to do this thing together. We're called to walk with one another. We're called to accomplish the plan of God for our lives in conjunction with the plan of God in other people's lives, doing it together as a team. We're gonna talk about that a lot more in, the next, in, a, in a couple of weeks. But Paul brought the gospel to, this re to these regions and we see all of these men from these regions coming with Paul to do ministry with him. Why? Because I believe Paul had a special place in their heart. They and their families and the people they love were now going to heaven, were now in a relationship with God the Father because this man Paul came and preached the gospel to them. And they wanted to fulfill that plan in their own lives. I also believe that Paul had the responsibility of raising up these younger believers, and he knew that. As an older, mature believer, he saw these younger believers and said, I want to mature them. Older Christians, older believers, we have the same responsibility. 
to grab a hold of the younger believers, and I'm not just talking about an age, they can be older than you, but newer and younger in the faith, to grab a hold of them and say, hey, let me help show you how to do this. Let me show you how to follow Jesus. That's my responsibility. I may not have done it, but I'm gonna take responsibility for it. I'm gonna help you. So we see Paul doing this, but also this is what scholars believe, that the reason why these men were, were with Paul on this journey to Jerusalem is because these were men, if you go back to it, they were people, men from Berea, men from um, Thessalonica, men from um, Derby, and, and from all of Troas. All of these men were from these different places where Paul preached the gospel, right? They were probably representatives of the money that was given, so they were probably men, men from Berea going, hey, I'm, I'm carrying the money that we raised from our church in Berea. I'm carrying the money that we raised in Troas. I'm carrying the money that we raised, so, so on and so forth. They're saying, I'm going to represent that and come with Paul to bring this money myself to Jerusalem. So here they are in Troas, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them. And since he was leaving the next day, don't miss this, this is so good, he kept talking until midnight. That encourages me. That encourages me. So guess what today we're going to do? I'm joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. Just joking. But two things that I do want you to see there, Paul did, he stayed and he preached until midnight, but the, the Bible's getting ready to tell us he preached longer than midnight. He knew he had something to impart to them. And I'm just going to say this, because I'm, not just because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a Christian. Sometimes we're, we send our kids to school to learn for eight hours a day, but we want to be in and out of church in one hour. Can I just say that? Is that okay? Even if it's not, I just said that. <laughs> But Paul knew he had something to impart to them. He knew that was something he needed to give them and they needed to hear it. The second thing that I want you to see is this. Paul gathered them on the first day of the week. The first day of the week, which in that culture was Sunday. Now, some of you have heard, and I've even talked to some of you here recently. Pastor, why don't we worship on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday? Why don't we worship on the Sabbath? The Sabbath never changed. The Sabbath is Saturday. But that was for Jewish people. That was for the Jewish covenant. And unless you're Jewish, you don't have to do that on Saturday. Some of you may want to, if that's your conviction, praise God, go for it. But we're going to worship on Sundays. Why? Two reasons. One, we see this as an example in the Bible. Paul did this. Some of you may say, well, Sunday pastors pagan because that was the day that they worshiped the sun. That's why they call it Sunday. But let me tell you why they call it Saturday because that's the day that they worship Saturn. So even with that, why do we worship on Sunday? Because the Bible shows us that example. But then secondly, we worship because that's the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead on a Sunday. So that's why we worship on Sundays, just for those who wanted to know. All right, verse eight. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. 
as Paul spoke on and on. Just catch this for a moment. Here's Paul's friend, his companion, the man who wrote this book going, Paul wouldn't shut up. He just, <laughs> just kept talking on and on. A young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill became very drowsy. This is happening around midnight. Finally, he fell asleep, found, excuse me, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death. Paul's getting ready to leave. He's holding this, this overnight prayer preaching meeting and he's preaching and I want you to get the setting. There was no electricity. It was lit by candles. They're in this building. Everybody's there. Paul just keeps talking. They're, they've had a, a feast together, a meal together. They're getting ready to receive communion. And this teenager, he's probably a teenager, he's sitting on the seal, probably trying to get wind because the window's open. And, and he's just like, oh my gosh. And this is encouraging to me because some of you have fallen asleep when I've been preaching. So I'm like, if you can fall asleep for Paul the apostle, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. And this kid falls to the ground three stories out of the window and dies. What's the point of this? If you fall asleep in church, you will die. That's not, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Just kidding. Verse 10, let's keep going, please. All right. Paul went down, bent over him, and took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said, he's alive. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? A man named Luke. And what was Luke's job? He was a doctor, he was a physician. He knew when somebody was dead and when someone wasn't dead. Paul goes and says, don't worry, he's alive. Then they all went back upstairs. Paul literally prayed for this kid, raises him from the dead. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn. And then he left. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. Paul's preaching a kid dies, he raises him from the dead, and Paul keeps preaching. <laughs> that's a man with a lot to say. But that's also a man who knew his responsibility. He knew he had to give them what God had given him. His responsibility was not whether or not they took it and received it. His responsibility was to give it. Listen, the job of a pastor and a preacher is not to make sure that you get it, it's to make sure that they've given it to you. And that's what Paul did. He gave them the truth. Verse 13. Now, don't miss this. Paul went by land to Azus, where he had arranged for us to join him, speaking of Luke and, and the other men, while we traveled by ship. Let me stop right there. So Paul pre preaches, raises the kid from the dead, goes back to preaching till dawn, probably five or six o'clock in the morning. And then the very next day, Paul sends his companions by boat to go to the next place. And he walks to the next place. From Azus, he went to, I'm read verse 14. It says, we jo he joined us there and we sailed together to Mytilene. Now, the next place that they were going was 20 miles away. 
Paul preaches and then walks a 20-mile journey to catch up with these men. Now, what was he doing on that 20-mile journey? Probably continuing to invest in the men and women that were in that church that he was leaving and he knew he was never going to see again. So he takes this journey. That's a man that is focused. That is a man that knows the call of God on his life and knows the plan of God for his life. And he's going to invest and he's going to do everything he can to make sure that he gives them what they need. Even if it means preaching all night and then walking and doing a 20 mile journey, however long that took him to do. Verse 15, the next day we sailed past the island of Chios. The following day we crossed to the island of Samos and a day later we arrived in Miletus. Paul knew his responsibility. Here Paul is traveling with these group and he's giving them all that they need. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when we landed in Miletus, he sent a messenger to the elders of the church in Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. Now again, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's focused to get to Jerusalem. He's not even wanting to go through Ephesus, this place that he spent three years investing in this church and preaching to them because he's focused on what God wants him to do. Get to Jerusalem, bring this gift to help the churches there. He's focused on that. Now, if Paul's determination to get to Jerusalem sounds familiar to you, it should. Because that's the exact same thing that the Bible says Jesus did. The Bible says Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also, like we just mentioned, wrote the gospel, I mean, wrote, excuse me, the book of Acts. There's some similarities, some parallels that he made intentionally between what Jesus did on his journey to Jerusalem and what Paul did on his journey to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about some of them, but I want you to see this. Here's some of the, journey, here's some of the parallels. Number one, Jesus took his disciples with him to Jerusalem. Paul took disciples with him to Jerusalem. Jesus was opposed and threatened to be killed by the Jewish people. Paul was opposed and threatened to be killed by the Jewish people. Jesus had his disciples ask him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul ended up having his disciples ask him not to go to Jerusalem. But both were so focused on obeying the plan of God for their life because they knew what their responsibility was, that nothing was going to change their mind from going. Paul wanted to be there for Pentecost and he was so focused on doing this. What God had put in his heart. Are we like that? When God puts something in our heart that he wants us to do, are we focused on it? Are we so caught up in I've got to accomplish what God wants me to do for my life that we push the distractions away or are we easily distracted by the things that come? Are we easily distracted by Netflix at nighttime? I want to pray, Pastor. I'm focused this year on praying, but Netflix is so good. Pastor, I want to I wanna lead a small group. I want to I wanna invest in other people's lives, but then somebody said something that offended me, so now I don't like people anymore. Do we let things deter us from the thing that we know God wants us to do? 
Paul knew his responsibility. Let me keep going. Verse 18, because I only have until midnight. Let's keep going. Verse 18. When they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot. Now, who, who is he talking to? He's talking to the leaders of Ephesus because, again, he didn't go through Ephesus. He didn't go there because he was focused on getting to Jerusalem, but he called for the elders, the leaders of the church to come. Why? Because he knew his responsibility was still to take care of them. And if he was going to leave that church, he wanted to make sure it was being left in good hands. He wanted to make sure that those leaders were equipped and ready to help that church take care of all of the things that were going to come their way. So he knew his responsibility there. But when they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, this is a great leadership teaching. He says, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I've never shrank back from telling you what you need to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message from, for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from turning, excuse me, repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. Now again, keep in mind, Paul is talking to Christian leaders and he's telling them what he modeled in front of them so that they could model the exact same thing to the people. He's telling them about his role as a shepherd of the people. He spent three years in Ephesus doing everything he just mentioned. Paul said, I walked humbly before you. I cried for you. I went through hard times and I went through, listen to this, I went through hard times in front of you. I went through my hardships in plain view for you to see. I didn't hide it. Sometimes you need to see the people that you admire go through hard things. Paul didn't isolate himself from the people he was called to lead. He gave his life to the people he was called to lead. That's good leadership. That's what God calls leaders to do. We live our lives with you. He said, I went through these hard things and you saw them. And another thing he says that he did faithfully is I told you the truth. See, one of the keys of having someone in your care, whether it's your children, whether it's your small group, whether it's your family, one of the keys to your role is telling people the truth even when they don't want to hear it. Even when it's uncomfortable for you to give it. Why? Because that's your responsibility. Responsibility is not always fun. You don't always get titles and accolades and people go, you did such a good job. Sometimes responsibility is, I did this, they're going to be mad at me for a very long time. And this is going to hurt me. But it's going to yield the fruit of righteousness in them if they'll let it. It's going to help them if they let it. Even when it's uncomfortable. Why do you do it? Not because you're so bold and you're so courageous. You do it because it's your responsibility. My role as your pastor is to tell you the truth. My role as your pastor is to help guide, even when that means crossing things that are sacred cows to you, things that culture is telling you, things that Mama told you is right and it's not. It's my job. 
He said, I preached the truth to you. And here, here was the truth Paul said, I preach. You have to repent and turn to God. Now listen to me, church, hear me. And I'm not saying this with any type of attitude. I don't mean this at all in a, in a sense to, to be an attitude. If someone tells you or preaches to you that you can be saved and live however you want to live and not make any changes in your life, they are lying to you. And they don't love you. They love themselves and they want something from you. True shepherds, true leaders want something for you. They don't want something from you. And I'm going to talk about that more in a moment. Again, I... Verse 22, and now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it to finish the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Paul knew what was ahead of him. To the point that God himself was constantly telling Paul, Paul, this is what's coming. You're going to be beat up. You're going to be put in jail. How many of you think that's real encouraging? You wake up in the morning, your devotional time, and the Lord's like, you're going to get beat up tomorrow. I rebuke that. That's what happened. And Paul, even with that, he just kept going. He just kept Facing it, he kept fighting, he kept moving forward. It reminds me of Rocky. How many of you remember Rocky? Remember Rocky too when Apollo Creed is talking about him? Don't worry if you've never seen it, just humor me. But in Rocky too, Apollo Creed is talking about his fight with Rocky and he's like, I hit that man with everything I had and he just kept coming forward. That is how we as Christians are supposed to be. We get in fights, we get hit, we get discouraged, people turn on us, people hurt us, people do this stuff, and we keep moving forward. We keep going. Pastor, I'm discouraged, I don't know what's gonna happen. Just keep going forward. Pastor, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be free from this. Keep moving forward. Pastor, I don't know if my marriage is gonna make it. Keep moving forward. This is what we do. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, my life is worth nothing to me. My life is worth nothing to me. What's he saying? He's saying that in my hands, my life is worthless. But in his hands, my life is worth something. In his hands, my life makes a difference in the world. My life accomplishes something in the world. He said, I count my life worth nothing, but that I finish the call that God has given me. Verse 25, and now I know that none of you, excuse me, now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. Think about that for a moment. This man has preached, brought the kingdom. They're saved, they're going to heaven, and now he's telling them, you'll never see me again. What a sad moment for the church. You'll never see me again. I declare today, though, that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault, for I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. Paul is saying, I took care of my responsibility. What you do with it was your responsibility. That was your responsibility. So guard yourself and God's people 
feed and shepherd God's flock. Remember, he's talking to church leaders. His church purchased by his own blood. You are the church of God. You are the people of God. You are the flock of God. And he loves you. You've got, you need to know that. He cares for you. This is not an organization. This is not just some big structured building. We're not just a mega church for the sake of being a mega church. You are God's precious sheep. That's how he views you. That's why he holds me accountable for you. That's why he holds Pastor Jacob accountable for you. That's why he holds our elders and our leaders accountable. You're smart, why? Because you are God's flock that he cares for. over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out, remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears. He says, guard the flock, take care of what's precious to Jesus his people. That's what's precious to Jesus, his people. And this is, again, something that Jesus modeled. Jesus in John chapter 10 says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the door. Now, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. The people that God, the pastors and people all over the world who pastor churches and all of this stuff, we're the under shepherds. You don't belong to me. You belong to Jesus. We're the under shepherds. He's the ultimate shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And he's modeled for all of us what responsibility should be like. I heard an, another theologian say this. He said that in, in that day, when Jesus is telling these Jewish people, they understood this in a way that we don't understand it. When he's talking about shepherds and sheep, he's telling them, he, shepherds in that day would have sheep in this pen. And this pen would, was like a big gate that the sheep were protected by, that things couldn't come in. And the entrance point was not a door, it was just an opening. That's all it was. So imagine it's like our, our closest thing we can imagine is like our children. Like we have these little gates to pin in our kids so that they don't go kill themselves or anybody else. And so you have these little gates right around the sheep. Imagine that with a wide open door that really there wasn't a door. It was just a gap. And when Jesus says, I'm the door, in that day what shepherds would do is they would lay down at that entrance so that if anything got in, it came through them. So when Jesus says, I'm the door, what he's saying is, I am standing guard over my sheep, over my people, and my sheep know my voice, and the stranger, they won't follow. I stand guard. And so what Paul is doing is he's telling these church leaders, take responsibility for the sheep that Jesus died for. Take responsibility for them. Now, what's interesting in this, and this is don't miss this, please don't miss this. Two things. Number one, part of, the, again, the, my, my role as a shepherd, and don't take this the wrong way. I keep saying that. Hopefully you won't take it the wrong way. But part of my role is to call out even false teachers. Don't think that when we say, don't do this. Hey, don't, don't, those, I make fun of preachers all the time on TV who tell you, give us $1,000 and I'll give you a piece of my tie. 
I'm not doing that because I'm mean. I'm doing that because that's a wolf. I'm doing that because that's the person who is taking advantage of the very sheep that Jesus died for, gave his life for, shed his blood for, and they're doing it to get something, not to give something to you. Be aware of those. Be aware of those. Be aware of those who would tell you, you can do whatever you want, grace, grace, grace. That's not what the Bible says. Be aware of those who do something to get something from you rather than giving something to you. Verse 32, I want you to see this. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those who has set apart, excuse me, who has set apart for himself. Wait a minute, pastor. Paul's taking responsibility for them, but yet Paul is leaving? What's happening here? What what do you mean he's going away? If he was really taking responsibility, he would have stayed there. Paul understood that his very first responsibility was to obey the voice of God. What am I saying when I say this? Responsibility is not ownership, it's stewardship. Responsibility is not ownership, it's stewardship. Paul knew that there were gonna be false wolves that came into the church in Ephesus. He knew there were gonna be people who were gonna come there to try to take stuff. That's why he was trying to equip the leaders, but he didn't stay because his number one responsibility was to obey God's voice, was to do what God wanted him to do. It's the same for us. We don't own our kids, they belong to God. We don't own the people that work for us, they belong to Jesus. We don't own our homes. We definitely know that because the government could take it like that. (laughs) But God gave it to us and we steward it. We take care of what belongs to him. Your kids, your family, your spouse, your checking account. It's a stewardship and you're accountable for it. Verse 33, I have never coveted, Paul said, I've never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul is saying, I didn't want something from you. I wanted something for you. I didn't want what you have. I wanted to give you what I have. I was a shepherd to you. I was responsible. Verse 36 When he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad, most of all, because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they escorted him down to the ship. Verse 1 of chapter 21. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he sailed straight to the island of, of Kos. The next day, when we reached Rhodes, and then we went to Patira, there we boarded a ship sailing for Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and then landed at the the harbor of Tyre, or Tyre if you're from the hood, in Syria, (laughs) where the ship was to unload its cargo. So Paul moves on, and I'm closing soon. Paul moves on, and then something strange starts to happen. 
Here's this man who knows his responsibility. He knows what God's called him to do. He knows what he's supposed to be doing. And then something very unique and strange starts happening. Verse four, when, excuse me, we went ashore, found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These believers, these believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city and came down to the shore with us. There we knelt praying and said farewell. Then we went aboard, excuse me, yeah, aboard, and they returned home. Paul's with Christians, believers, entire, and they start prophesying to him that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem because of the horrible things that's going to happen to him when he goes there. This is odd because didn't God tell Paul to go there? So why, is, why are these believers prophesying that Paul shouldn't go there? I'll tell you one reason why, and I'm going to unpack it just in a moment as I close. Because promised lands don't come without giants. I told our leaders this this morning in our leaders meeting. Promised lands don't come without giants. You don't get to the thing God's promised you to do without having to go through a fight to get there. And I think sometimes in Christianity and even in our own lives in taking responsibility, the reason why we don't want to take responsibility is because it's hard. We don't like hard. We like easy. We like everybody to love us. We love everybody's opinions to be favorable of us. We like to go to bed at night and just sleep peacefully without being concerned about stuff. We like that. But that's not how you get to your promised land. You get to your promised land through fights. You get, through your prom you get to your promised land through conflicts. You get to your promised land through coming up against challenges. And I know some of you think I'm the only one. I can promise you, look around the room. Everyone else that's entering into their promised land is going through conflicts and battles. Every one of them. Everyone. That's why the Bible says, think it not strange that you're dealing with these things as though some strange thing has happened to you. We all face hardships, we all face problems, we all face conflicts, we all face heartaches, but we keep going, why? Because it's our responsibility to do so. If responsibility was easy, everyone would do, everyone would do it, but we don't because it's hard. Then verse seven, to up the ante a little bit, the next stop, after leaving Tyre was Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day, we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, and I love this, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. So they move on, and they go to this place and this man named Philip is there. And some of you remember Philip. Philip was in chapter eight of the book of Acts. He was the man that God used to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch and lead him to Jesus and bring the gospel to Africa. 
He was the man who got sent to Samaria and he goes to Samaria and this starts a whole revival amongst the Samaritan people who people thought that the Jews at that time thought they can't be saved. Philip goes, preaches the gospel and now there's a revival happening in Samaria. And now we see Philip fast forward all these years. He's in this place called Ptolemus. And the Bible tells us he's got four daughters who are prophetesses. Now, why did that happen? Number one, Philip took responsibility for his call to preach the gospel in Samaria. But Philip also took responsibility for his own family. He preached the gospel not just to others. He preached the gospel to his own children. He preached the gospel to those he was raising in his own household to the point where here we are all these years later and his four daughters have the call of God on their life and they're prophets. I hope that, for, I want that for my own kids. When all of this is said and done and I'm an old man, I want my kids to love Jesus. I want my kids to look back and go, daddy took responsibility for us. He made sure that not just the church knew the word of God, but we knew the word of God. He made sure not just his small group was accountable, he made sure we were accountable. He didn't just pray for the sick people in the church, he prayed for the sick people in our house. So we see this with Philip, he took that responsibility. But then verse 10, and I'm almost done, I promise, I'm not just saying that. Verse 10, several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt and bound him his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, the Holy Spirit declared, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged. Now these are Paul's friends. These are his disciples. We all begged him begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So now his own people are saying, don't go. But he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we could not persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Paul knew what God's call was. So did Paul disobey God? Not at all. I don't believe that. What I believe is this, Paul didn't confuse the predictions of the pain to come, the predictions of the giants in the land. He didn't allow that, he didn't confuse that with God telling him not to go. God was not telling him not to go. God was telling him, God told him from the very beginning, God told the man that led him to Jesus, the man that, that prayed for him for his scales to come off, I'm gonna use this man to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and he's gonna suffer a lot of things. Paul knew that and he still took responsibility. Church, what am I saying? Church, men, parents, bosses, leaders, take responsibility even when it's hard. Take responsibility even when there's a giant in front of you. Take responsibility even when it's hard and people may turn on you. Take responsibility for your marriage and the condition of your marriage. Forget what your spouse did, own what you did. Take responsibility for your own addictions. Get the help you need because you know you need it. Take responsibility for your attitude. 
Take responsibility for the job that you have and take responsibility for the communities in which you live. Preach the gospel to them. This is our call. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the examples of Paul in the Bible, of the responsibilities that he took. Most importantly, thank you for the responsibility or the model rather of Jesus who came and died on the cross for something he did not do, but rather something we did. Lord, I pray today that you would help us in all spheres of life, whether it's owning something we've done, whether it's owning something our kids did, whether it's owning something, God, that our spouse did, whatever it is, help us to take responsibility. Whether stepping out to help someone that we see struggling because they're part of our spiritual family and it's our responsibility to do so. Help us to be people who are so counter the culture that we live in that we actually take responsibility and own the moment that you've given us. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Gabe, you're talking about Jesus taking responsibility for sin. There's sin in my life that separates me from him. And I have not even been willing to take responsibility for it in my own life. And it's music to my ears to hear that he came to take responsibility for my sin. God wants to forgive you of that. He wants to cleanse you of that. He wants you to have a right relationship and right standing with him. That's why he came. Not because you, you earned it or you deserve it. You don't deserve it. But he gave it. He came and he gave it freely because he loves us. And he took responsibility for us. So no one looking around, if you would say, Pastor, I want to be born again. I want to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to ask you to do three very simple things, as easy as A, B, C, A, admit. Admit that I'm a sinner, the sin in my life, and I'm far away from him. B, believe, believe that God sent Jesus. Believe that the things I'm telling you are actually true, that what the text of scripture, what the Bible actually says is true. Jesus came, died on the cross for our sin, rose again from the dead with a new life so that you could have a new life. And then C, confess. Confess what? That he is now the Lord of your life. You make the proclamation, the declaration, I'm following him with my life from this point on. So when no one looking around, On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to just lift up your hand. If you say, that's me, Pastor, I want to be born again. One, two, three. That's you. Lift up your hand. If you say, Pastor, that's me. I want to be saved today. Thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else say, this is my moment, Pastor. I want to be born again. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. This is your moment with God. Praise God. Church, pray this prayer with me. It's not the words that save us. It's a surrendered heart and the gift of that God came to give us, that saves us. Say this with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven a purpose on earth and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of it. And I choose to follow you. 
And from this moment on, God, you're my father. Jesus, you're my savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate with every person that prayed that prayer to be born again.